Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, please? You know, we've actually already heard this sermon already this morning. And in the songs we sing, we confessed it. We sing in, in the first song, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. And in praise to the Lord, the Almighty, we said this line, Hast thou not seen how thy desires e'er have been granted in he that ordaineth? In what he ordaineth? And in the last song, we saw certain words capitalized to describe Christ. They called him, said, this cornerstone, this solid ground, my comforter, my all in all. Why were they capitalized? They were capitalized because he is those things. He defines them. And we need to see him this morning because he is comfort. He is satisfaction. He is all and in all. And we need to see that this morning. We're going to be starting with verse 28 of Luke 19. After he said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he approached Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. We're going to be focusing our attention later in the passage this morning, primarily. But before we read on, I'd like to point out to you Christ's perfect vision and knowledge. The man who knows that in a nearby town is a donkey tied up on which no one has ever sat and gives his disciples precisely the words to say to allow the owner of the donkey to let it go freely without any questions, is not an ordinary man. He's someone who sees perfectly, who knows the future, who understands the heart of man and knows what needs to be said in order to persuade him. So we're dealing with God. This is Jesus as God revealed here. He sees all things perfectly. We're going to be talking about spiritual blindness this morning. And there's a difference between physical and blindness and spiritual blindness that we need to understand. Those who are physically blind know that they can't see. Either they could see at some point and lost their vision through an accident or disease or else they were born blind. Either way, they have at least a sense of their impediment. A spiritually blind man, however, is not aware of his blindness. It is characteristic of spiritual blindness that those who have it are blind to it. But Jesus, we see here, sees perfectly. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He is able to see even in the depths of our hearts and knows every single secret thought every hidden motive. And this is his word that we're reading. So if it diagnoses us today, 
we can be certain that we're getting an accurate diagnosis from a master physician. I urge you to listen to what he has to say from his word this morning. You can trust what it tells you. Let's go on. Verse 33. As they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy. We read this this morning in our call to worship from Matthew, or in Matthew, and it references a scripture from Zechariah, Zechariah the prophet, about 500 years before this time. He prophesied these words, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By far the most common interpretation of Jesus riding on a colt is to say that it's a sign of his poverty, of his humility. And they contrast that often with his returning on a white horse as a sign of his wealth and glory, of his prestige, of his position. And there is certainly truth in that. But I think more significantly here is how this action of his riding on a donkey correlates with the Old Testament King Solomon, who began his peaceful reign. Solomon presided over the most peaceful time in Israel's life. How Jesus riding on a donkey coincides with the peaceful reign of Solomon. Solomon began his reign by riding to his coronation upon his father David's mule. The greater symbolism, symbolism of a king is of a king who comes in peace, as Stephen prayed in the pastoral prayer. The donkey is a sign of Christ's good intentions toward us, of his good will. Verse 36. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent... The stones will cry out. We were made to worship Jesus Christ. Isn't that what these verses are telling us? Jesus is approaching Jerusalem and the people are taking off their coats and they're laying them over the road before him. The equivalent today would be rolling out the red carpet for Jesus, but I think it's even far more extravagant than that. They're taking off their own prized possessions and laying them before him so that he doesn't have to trot on the dirt. And they're crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, they're upset. And they don't think it's appropriate what the people are saying and doing. And they're trying to get Jesus to make the crowd stop. And he rebukes the Pharisees saying, If these people become silent, the stones will cry out. In other words, 
Jesus is saying, don't you realize that these people are doing precisely what I made them to do? Don't you realize this is why men have mouths? Why I gave them mouths? To praise me? To say such things about me? If these people become silent, you will find that the rocks beneath your feet will suddenly grow mouths of their own and do the job for them. He will be praised, won't he? He will be worshipped. And he made man specifically for that work. Do you remember the first thing that the Westminster Shorter Catechism taught us? We've been reading through it in our services systematically. What was the first question? It asked, what is the chief end of man? And we answered, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that's absolutely true and straight from Scripture. Revelation 4.11 says this, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. We were made to glorify God. But it's one thing to confess that in our catechism, and it's quite another to live it in reality. What if we were to have to rewrite the catechism so that it actually reflected the reality of our hearts, of our daily life, of the way we actually go about living, the way we actually believe? Man's chief end is to glorify what? Me? The next episode of Lost? And enjoy that forever? Man's chief end is to glorify What, George? Money and enjoy it forever? Pretty accurate, I would say. What about this one, men? Man's chief end is to glorify Internet pornography and secretly enjoy indulging in it forever. Is that why God gave us eyes? Ladies, what's something particular to you? A woman's chief end is to glorify what? Somebody in the first service said shopping. I wasn't going to say it. Her, her children? Is that why women were made? To worship them? To worship their children? Where do we turn for comfort? What do we most admire? What do we get excited about? What do we take our greatest pleasure in? How we answer that question will tell us a lot about what we worship. Blessed are those who do hunger and thirst after the applause of men. Isn't that how that verse actually reads in the depths of our hearts? How about this one? It's pretty twisted. Jody's chief end is to preach in such a way that he proves himself gifted at it, Gaining the love and admiration of everybody in this room, especially Stephen and Dave and Tim, if you were here. And in so doing, glorifies himself and enjoys feelings of validation forever. (laughs) That's pretty twisted and sick. But it's honest. That's me. That's That's where the rubber meets the road when it comes right down to it. 
what is my motivation? If you're brave enough to look into your own heart, you will admit that this is you too. Adjust some of the details, perhaps. God made man to worship him, and so he made man a creature who worships. Worship is what we do. That is who we are. Worship is how we respond to all of life. We see Michael Jordan make the impossible half-court. I say Michael Jordan because I haven't watched basketball in so long, but that's the last basketball star I remember. But we see Michael Jordan make the impossible half-court shot. I saw him make those sorts of shots when I was a teenager winning championships. And he beats the buzzer and he wins the game, wins the championship, scores 63 points. And what do we do? We worship him. The whole world worships him. We hear the guitarist in our favorite band, this is more accurate for me today, nail that sweet solo perfectly. Where we hear a moving performance of our favorite orchestra, of our favorite piece. And what do we do? We can't stop talking about it. We glory in it. We worship it. This is a trait that distinguishes man from the rest of creation. I was talking to Stephen about this sermon, and he told me something that Ted Tripp is fond of, an uh, illustration Ted Tripp is fond of using. Ted Tripp was Stephen and Dave, Stephen and Jeff's pastor previously. And Ted would say, we don't see penguins going around high-fiving each other for their per- for, for the perfect dives do we? We don't see bears putting up posters in their caves of other bears' fishing abilities. <laughs> Grizzly so-and-so scores 63 salmon. This is something that we do. Whatever it is we consider to be most glorious, whatever seems most delightful, Whatever it is that amazes us, we will give that thing our worship. Whatever we identify as best able to meet our needs, whatever seems to be the answer to our fears, we worship it. And we can't help it. It's the most natural thing in the world for us to do because we are supposed to worship the most glorious thing. We were made to adore the thing that best meets our needs. Our problem isn't a failure to worship. We worship constantly. Our problem is that we worship all the wrong things. We do exactly what we were made to do, but we do it in the wrong direction. Back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, the problem wasn't that they stopped worshiping. It's that they started worshiping something new. Does Scripture define the fall in that way, in terms of worship? Would you turn to Romans chapter 1? Romans chapter 1, verse 21. If you were going to try and sum up the essential problem of man in just a few sentences, you could not do better than this passage. Romans 1, 21. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul 
concerning our first parents, Adam and Eve, and by way of them, us. He says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Everybody remembers how that went down, right, back in Genesis 3. The The serpent comes to Eve and he says... Indeed, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Which is, of course, not at all what God had said. And Eve reminds him that what God actually said was, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, except for the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And what did the serpent say next? Eve... God's been lying to you. You won't die if you eat from that tree. Instead, you'll become like him, knowing good and evil. And so what? Professing herself to be wise, Eve became a fool. And she gave some of the fruit to her husband, Adam, and in eating it, what did he do? With Eve, he exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. Right from the very beginning, we failed. It wasn't a failure to worship. It was a failure to worship God. But hold on a second. Let's consider the logic that I've been using. God made us to be worshippers. Our most basic natural response is to worship glorious things, And since Christ is infinitely more glorious and infinitely more able, infinitely more worthy of worship than any created thing, you'd think it would follow that we would most naturally and most completely set our affections on Him. Do we? By nature? Is that our instinct? Is that our impulse? It isn't. And the remainder of our passage provides the answer to that question of why. It's a simple but profound answer. Let's start reading again at verse 39 of Luke 19. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation." Just as Jesus had known that there was a donkey tied up in some village with his name on it, 
just as he had known that, he knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem. He knew that the crowd that was now cheering him would turn on him in less than a week and yell out, Crucify him! Crucify him! He knew that Peter, his close friend and disciple of three years, would deny ever having known him. He understood precisely what was coming, that he would be rejected, falsely accused, beaten, killed, that virtually the whole city of God would, as it says here, fail to recognize the time of their visitation, that they would not know the things which make for peace. The King of Kings, the promised Messiah, comes to them peacefully, mounted on a donkey, and they are going to utterly reject him. What does Jesus give as the reason for this? Verse 42. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but they have been hidden from your eyes. The most glorious being in the universe, the most powerful, the most able, the most beautiful. And look, he comes in peace. He's also a most willing Savior. But they don't see him. They don't see him for who he is. He's been hidden from their eyes. They are blind to him. Not physically blind, of course. They see a man there on a donkey, sure enough. A man not particularly striking or handsome. Isaiah confirms that. He's not a man at all impressive in wealth or position. He's not at all kingly as far as earthly kings go. But they have seen him perform miracles. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He had even raised the dead. And so the thought was that here was a man who could finally liberate them from the Roman Empire. To free them from the humiliation of being ruled over by a foreign ruler, Caesar. They didn't realize that he had actually come to liberate them from an infinitely more oppressive and ruthless rule than Caesar's the tyranny of their own sinful hearts. To see that Jesus would require seeing not with physical eyes, but with spiritual eyes. It would require seeing him by faith. Is it natural for us to see by faith, to see in that way, to see that Jesus? Had we been there on that day, would we have been any different than the people of Jerusalem? Would we have recognized this lowly, unlikely, poor homeless man to be the son of God the king over all kings would we have understood that we needed him to effect for us more than mere external changes that we needed him not just to mend our crippled legs and feed our empty bellies not just to help us recover lost political control but rather to free us from bondage to sin and death Would we have called on him as Savior in that day? Would we have recognized the day of our visitation? No. Without God's help, no. Because we too are blind. We were born with our spiritual eyes shut tight. By our basic nature, we live in the dark. Scripture tells us, this very thing in all kinds of places and ways. We've already read one of them, Romans 1:21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, 
and their foolish heart was darkened. They became blind. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We were born into captivity to Satan, and he has blinded us. The only thing that keeps us from worshiping Jesus Christ perfectly and at all times is our inability to see him. If we saw him truly, we could not help but worship. Listen as I read these verses from Philippians 2. It says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every man in this room myself included, every woman, every child, every person that you know, every person who has ever lived, will see the risen and glorified Jesus Christ in the flesh. And every last one of our tongues will confess that He is Lord. In that moment of truth, all the idols that we worship will be obliterated we will all finally see that He is the most glorious thing. On that day, everyone will know just how worthy He is. And it won't simply be a theoretical kind of intellectual sort of understanding. It will be visceral. The strength of His presence will overwhelm us. His beauty will consume our every thought. The light of His face will invade every particle of our body. And we will do the work that we were made to. We won't be able to stop it. We will worship Him. As soon as we see Him instantly, we will fall on our faces knowing that we are but dust, that we are not worthy even to be compared with Him. Our righteousness will be like filthy rags compared to His righteousness. Our strength will be like total impotency compared to His strength. Shouts of praise will gush forth from our mouth. You think of how you, the thing you get most excited about, and you will go far beyond that in your praise of Jesus Christ when you see Him. There is nothing more certain than this. We will worship God. So why worry about it now? If every last one of us will worship Him then, 
Why get so concerned about who we're worshiping now? It's a stupid, idiotic question. But I've asked it. And if you're following the logic, you should be asking it too. It needs answering. So why do we need to see and worship Christ today? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. The scripture says, today is the day of our salvation. Now is the time of our visitation. Today, Jesus comes to us in peace, riding on a donkey. But when he comes again, he will, it will be for judgment. And he will be riding a horse of war. Only those who have seen Christ by faith, here and now, will escape his devastating and catastrophic wrath. All will worship him then, but if it's for the first time, it will be too late. There are only two kinds of people here this morning. There are those who are totally blind. Some of you are blind. You have never seen Jesus Christ beyond knowing about him, seeing the words, the reality, the, the things he said on paper. You've heard sermons, but you've never seen Jesus Christ. That is some of you. You are blind. The rest of us have seen somewhat, but we desperately need to see more of him. We all fall into one of these two categories. Some here need to have their eyes open, period. The rest of us need to have them opened wider. And I know this is the case because Scripture says as much. On the one hand, we've already read in 2 Corinthians 4 how the gospel is veiled to some, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Some of you are utterly blind and have never seen Jesus Christ. Others of us have seen and do see. Excuse me. <clears throat> but we desperately need to see him more. We need to see him more fully. If this weren't the case, why would Paul offer this prayer for the church in Ephesians chapter 1? He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling what are the riches of the glory of his, his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things in subjection under His feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, says Paul. And he's writing to Christians at Ephesus, people who see. Some of us have indeed been given this miraculous gift of sight. But we do not yet see Christ so fully or consistently that we worship him without fail. We have the capacity for sight, but our vision is very dim. 
From time to time our eyes wander back to their old vices and their old ways. Often we find ourselves wooed back to sleep by the sin that remains in us and our eyes shut. Whatever our condition, whether we are totally blind or whether we have seen, the answer for all of us is the same. We need to see Jesus Christ and as fully as possible. In Him is life. Remember the song? In Him is comfort. He is comfort. In Him alone is truth and beauty. In Him is real satisfaction. There is no hope in this world or the next. There is no hope in this world or the next apart from seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Now here's the deal. I can't open your eyes. I can't say anything this morning that will help you. I can't open my own eyes. I have no strength to do that, no power at all. But what I can do, I will. I will hold up Jesus to you as best I can and proclaim that He came into this world to save sinners. He came to open the eyes of the blind. Luke says He wants to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. He calls out to you, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Nothing in this world can satisfy you like Jesus Christ. He says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus Christ will never leave you or forsake you. He is the definition of faithfulness and truth. As the hymn says, there is no shadow of turning with him. Did you have a lousy father? Jesus Christ gives us a perfect father who loves us without fail, who will adopt you as a son, who will bring you into his family and set a place for you around his table, who will provide for your needs, who loves to give good gifts to his children. God is a good father. He's the best father. What else? What are some of the other reasons to worship Christ? What about His love? What does the Bible say about God's love? What does He do with our sins? Does He hold them against us? Does He keep a record of wrongs? Does He keep a little keep track of all of the misdeeds, missteps I've taken, all the secret thoughts that I've thought? Or will He forgive me utterly? And how far? To what extent? As far as the east is from the west, right? You can't even measure that. 
but about his compassion. Didn't we just read how he wept over Jerusalem when he approached it and said it was because of her blindness that it made him sad that they would not see him, that they would not recognize the time of their visitation? While dying an agonizing death on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. Do you think that you've ever seen love like that? Do you think that you're going to get that from anybody else? That's a perfect love. What about his patience? Is Christ long-suffering? Is he patient with us? Can he sympathize with our weaknesses? Hebrews 4. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ is patient. He understands. He knows. He welcomes you to his throne where you will find strength. What about his strength? How strong is he? What does his strength make him able to do that no mere creature can do? All sorts of things. Can you think of any? I actually don't have a scripture written down here, so can anybody think of anything that the scripture says about God's strength? He's a strong tower. He's a refuge. He's able to to raise up kings and tear them down. What about his purity? The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. The words of Christ are pure. What about his wisdom? Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His wisdom is greater than ours. It is the greatest. It defines wisdom. What about his beauty? 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that he dwells in inapproachable light. It's too beautiful even to look at. I know that scriptures are coming to your mind. I invite some of you to stand and read if you can find something. Help me to see Christ. Worshiping Jesus Christ will allow you to do the impossible thing. It will allow you even to go to your death with joy. And be rewarded for it eternally. What about his worth? Think of what some of us are willing to pay who have the money for works of art. Creation of an artist on the canvas. 
and think of the trillions and trillions and trillions of galaxies of stars and planets. Think of the beautiful images you've seen from the Hubble telescope and multiply that by infinite upon infinite. And you have begun to understand what Christ is worth. If you could put a value to that, you have begun to understand what Christ is worth, but it far exceeds even all of that. He made it in a moment by speaking. What about his anger? Revelation 19:15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. What about his judgment? It is, in, it is severe. It is... Imagine, remember what the, the people say in Revelation 6 who... Let me just find it real quick. I believe it's Revelation chapter 6. Verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and, and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. This is when Christ returns. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! And hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? That's a kind of worship. It's a terrible kind of worship. I'd hate to think that it would be me saying those things. That I would see Christ returning and I would fear his wrath. But it is a worship. It confesses his Awesomeness. What about his riches? Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Anybody come up with something? Stephen, you always have scriptures in your head. Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Amazing. We've got to stop. But it's a shame, isn't it? Don't you think it's a shame? This is a sermon that could go on forever. It will go on forever. With or without us. So what do we do? How do we respond to this? 
We need to see Jesus Christ, and he alone can give us the sight to see by faith. And guess what? He came to give sight to the blind. This is the purpose of his mission here. To bring back captives, those captive to Satan, into the kingdom of God. He extends that invitation to you. If you will turn, open your eyes, and worship him. Those of us who have seen, who are, have been transferred into that other kingdom by faith, we need to grow in that faith. And we need to stuff our faces in God's word where Christ is, don't we? This is the way we need to live. The first thing we do in the morning, we need to, we need to live right here, these last pages of this sermon, reminding ourselves of, what, of who Christ is, what he can do, what he does, what he offers us, how beautiful he is. Let's pray.